Hello and welcome to On the Mathematical Frontline, a special series of the PLUS podcast. My name is Rachel Thomas. In On the Mathematical Frontline, we've been talking to the mathematicians whose efforts have been crucial in the fight against the pandemic. They're the people who make sense of the data to estimate things like the R number, and they make the mathematical models that inform and sometimes don't inform government policy. They've been grappling with an unprecedented challenge, fighting a live pandemic that's unfolding in front of their eyes. And in this podcast, they tell us about the maths they do, how they go about it, and the impact it's had on their personal lives. For this episode, my colleague Marianne Freiberger talked to Ellen Brooks-Pollock and Leon Danon, both from the University of Bristol. They're members of the Juniper Consortium of modelling groups from across the UK whose research and insights feed into the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Modelling Group, which is otherwise known as SPI-M, and the now familiar SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. Both of these bodies advise the UK government on the scientific aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Ellen and Leon are also a couple who have stuck it out through the lockdowns, not just in terms of living arrangements and childcare, but also in terms of work. And if you don't live with your partner, but instead have benefited from the support bubbles policies that allows you to team up with another household, then you have Ellen and Leon to thank for that. As we find out later in the podcast, it's their work on household bubbling, which showed that these support bubbles were safe. But before she asked them about their work, Marianne congratulated Ellen on what Leon thinks was their most remarkable experience of the pandemic. Ellen was recently awarded an OBE, and Marianne asked Ellen how she felt about that. Yeah, I felt, um, I mean, kind of obviously very excited. It was great. I also felt a bit self, self-conscious because there's so many, well, one, me and Leon work together. And, you know, there's so many people contributing to SPY-M and generally scientists working on COVID. That I think it is a bit difficult to pick individuals out. And, um, you know, I mean, there are some people who are obviously, you know, like the chair of SPY-M, um, who obviously, I think, who probably everyone unanimously thinks that they should receive some kind of recognition. But I felt like um, I'm not in that position. So I think it's obviously amazing. Of course you are. But I, yeah, I also felt a bit conscious, a bit weird about it. If it helps, I feel pretty good about Ellen getting an <laughs> Good, so you're not jealous, you haven't had arguments. I've had no, many no. arguments, but never about that. Not about that. <laughs> right, so let's get into the other question. So for yeah. both of you, what did you do work-wise before the pandemic? Do you want to start, Leah? Uh, yeah, so I've been, I'm a physicist by training, so I did physics to begin with, and then I did a whole bunch of work on networks, contact networks, and that got me into epidemic modelling. So I've been sort of doing epidemic modelling for quite a long time. I was um, a lecturer in Queen Mary University, and then 
at Bristol for a short period and then at Exeter University I, did, I started doing a data science type job teaching data science to, to computer science students so that was uh, quite heavily um, loaded on the teaching so when the pandemic started that kind of had to be reduced. And you Ellen? Um, well i worked in infectious disease modelling since I started my PhD, which was in 2004. Yeah. And I've worked on kind of a variety of different diseases. My PhD was mainly on bovine TB and cattle. Uh, I did that at Warwick with Matt Keeling, looking at how um, cattle movements spread bovine TB. I then did a postdoc in America in Harvard, looking at drug resistant TB. And I was um, the modeler as part of a, a large project looking at drug resistant TB transmission in Peru. I then worked on the flu survey, which is an online survey of, oh, well, of community level flu. So uh, that was with John Edmonds at the London School. And then I uh, had a fellowship looking at bovine TB again, uh, which I was actually in Cambridge. And then since um, moving to Bristol, I've been working um, on human TB again um, in trying to do things like measure the reproduction number of TB in people in the UK, which uh, we estimate is about 0.4. It shows you how small it is compared mm -hmm. to COVID. with uh, working on COVID? Well, um, it was actually, Leon had suggested that we do something on COVID. It was, I mean, I think our involvement, from my point of view, our involvement with COVID was a bit weird because it was kind of self-initiated. Leon has done, in the past, he'd developed a national scale model of, was it a flu and of smallpox? It was, yeah, and I was working with Matt Keeling, his group, and which is actually where we met. Um, yeah, that was a national scale model that looked at movements and used them to predict where the infection would go next. Why smallpox? Isn't it gone? Is no, it? but it was it was a it was a, a contingency for deliberate release. It was an anti-terrorist type. Oh, so there's okay. So just in case somebody gets yeah. it from the lab, and that's very interesting that that was happening. And did you do that just off your own back? Yeah, it was a commission project. They were looking at all sorts of potential agents that would have, you know, infectious disease agents that would have caused havoc, and smallpox was one of them. So I I I adapted that. We adapted that to COVID as it was emerging back in February. I think it was even even January 2020. I mean, I suggested it to someone that I work with that I said, oh, you know, we're thinking about doing this model of COVID. And they had said, oh, no, you really don't need to do that. All the modeling's in hand. Um, you know, there's lots of modelers doing it. Don't like, kind of don't waste your time, basically. And so I was a bit well, like, I kind of thought maybe mm. we shouldn't do it. But Leon was quite keen on doing it. And he, he, well, yeah, he was obviously just... absolutely right. I feel like one one of the things that I've definitely learned from it is don't don't take no for an answer. 
if, oh, if somebody tells you not to do something, it's easy to listen to them, mm. but, but don't. Unless you agree, <laughs> but we obviously didn't. model that you'd adapted for COVID, what was special about that compared to other models? A couple of things were interesting about it. One, it was um, based on movement data. So we had a bit more detail in it about how COVID might spread across the country. We also put in some seasonality in it. And so actually the general patterns looked really like the general patterns that we saw at early on mm. uh, for the first couple of waves really up to last summer um and so yeah that seasonality was an unusual part of it mm. so, yeah i mean so then because of that we got invited or leon was invited to attend spy m in was it in february 2020 yeah it was towards the to, yeah towards the end of february 2020 and then i couldn't go to one of them or I had a clash for one of them. So Ellen went and then we kept contributing and contributing and then became, became permanent members. Yeah, actually that initial model we've hardly used at all. It's been mm. completely other, other stuff that we've ended up doing most of our work on. Yeah. Um, that was my next question. Like if you could yeah. give us a bit of an idea of what kind of work you've been doing. Yeah, so, uh, so most of the stuff that I've done has been looking at using social contact data which is just data on who who you met where you met them how long for and to try and characterize the rate at which covid is spreading based on the social contact data so most models that are generally being used take a kind of top-down approach where you start with your whole population and then you might make it um, divide them into different groups or kind of add some complexity in different places. Whereas when you're using the social contact data, you start with an individual and you kind of scale up from the individual to the population. So you're kind of going in the opposite direction. Where, where did this data come from? So it was in 2010, they collected, they devised a social contact survey and you can describe it if you want. No, that's okay. You carry on. Uh, yeah. So they, but I, I, I obviously knew about good it. Job. <laughs> I don't mind. Uh, because I was still connected with the group, and obviously I knew Leon. Um, yeah, it was around. Uh, they recruited around six thousand participants. Yeah, we published a couple of papers back in two thousand and ten and eleven, and was just waiting for the pandemic. <laughs> so did you when 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 it was collected was it with flu in mind or just generally it, with communication? yeah that was the that was it was respiratory infections in general but flu as a particular focus um because of the way that we define social contact within a close range for a certain number of minutes that were relevant for flu and not other things like tb um and, but one of the yeah. unusual things about the survey that made it different from other social contact surveys is they'd ask specifically about groups of people. Mm. Um, so they'd asked when, you know, if you met, like, for example, going to church or in a football team, like, 
they didn't just ask about you know individual contacts they asked about these groups mm. which other surveys hadn't and in March last year uh, and at the same time Leon and I had done some work looking at a, a kind of the more theoretical piece of work that just who, that we were still thinking about but we published looking at the attributable fraction uh, of uh, the attributable fraction of cases due to a particular thing so uh, for non-communicable diseases, the example is always given the percentage of lung cancers that are due to smoking, for example. Um, but for infectious diseases, it's a bit more it's a bit more difficult because there's indirect and direct effects that you've got to consider. So you could say, like, what's the attributable fraction of AIDS cases due to not using condoms, or what's the reduction you could get in AIDS cases due to due to condom use? And um, so we'd done a bit of kind of theoretical work on how you would define that for an infectious disease. And so our, basically our first piece of work that we presented at SPIAM was looking at the attributable fraction of cases that were due to groups of different sizes using the social contact survey data. And that was, this was in March last year and it was before there was a full lockdown and there was a kind of an interest in what you know should the Cheltenham Festival have gone ahead for example um you know what would um, there was also a big football match in Liverpool so what what was the impact of these large events on the spread of Covid um, and so using using a social contact survey with its groups we essentially could switch the groups on and off and estimate the attributable fraction of Covid cases due to groups of various different sizes and um, that was that was quite well received, but apart from anything else, because there was really just a lack of any information mm. or any evidence either way. So there was a lot of stuff in the papers saying that groups are, you know, they're absolutely terrible. And Cheltenham was responsible for thousands of cases, but actually, but no evidence, but no evidence at all. It was just no studies, kind really. of intuition. People think, oh, that must yeah. be bad. Um, but actually this this was one of the first pieces that mm. quantified it and said it it might not be as bad as you think so the attributable fraction due to groups of 50 or more for example is really small is like less than five percent mm. and that's because like for example me as an individual I'm going to have plenty of contacts in the home mm -hmm. in the workplace but I'm only going to go to a football match once every few months so therefore that contribution is then just really low is that roughly the reason yeah, yeah. exactly and since you started working on spyam you've done a lot more work and varied work can you give us another example? There was the work on that you wrote about, about household bubbles. Well, that was, so I think one of the characteristic, one of the things that I found particularly interesting while working at COPE on, on, in this environment is that there are policy questions that can be answered in multiple ways, some of which are very difficult or involve quite a lot of work, but you can get reasonable approximations quite quickly with 
some minimal insights or or an approach that other people don't necessarily have at their fingertips. And I feel like the the household bubbling paper that we wrote that was based on percolation theory was one of those. It's just, you know, it wasn't. It's not a traditional epidemiological analysis, um, and was quite useful at the time because um, there weren't any other groups that were doing it. So, could you roughly describe the approach? So we again used as much individual-based information as we could, but, uh, using the information from the ONS. Um, census about what household, how households are distributed, what are the household sizes of the people living, made some really some basic assumptions about the number of contacts that people in those households have, and then use those two bits of information um, to build a network, a pretend network that isn't real, but is, a, is just a model. And then um, undertook what is known as a percolation analysis, which is sort of pruning that network and removing links until it breaks up. The, the amount of pruning that you have to do, the cutting of links that you have to do, um, tells you something about how easy it is for an infection to spread on that network. And the point at which that network just kind of breaks up into small bits, that is, so you know, if you need to do a lot of pruning, then um, that is a network that, that's not easy to break up and infection can pass through it quite quickly and quite easily. And so we were able to use that to, to test some, some bubbling strategies. So whether we can join households together and what types of households are we able to join together with what other types of households um, and what would be okay and what would be less okay. And we found that fairly intuitive results that if you join up big households together, then you get a, then you're facilitating infection through the population. And if you join small households together, that's okay. What was the most striking experience? For you over the last year and a half? I mean, that could be a mathematical or other experience. I think it was an OBE. <laughs> it's pretty striking. Yeah, go on, you can answer first. Yeah, I think it was the OBE. No? Why? It was pretty cool. I don't know, you can answer. What did you think? Well, I mean, Obviously 2020 has been a bit of a weird year, mm. but I feel like I've learned, I've learned loads. And as well, as well as learning loads, I feel like COVID's really tested every aspect of infectious disease modeling theory that, that we've spent the last 15 years learning about. I mean, there's been uh, multiple strains, uh, evolution, <clears throat> um, just <laughs> basically contact patterns, contact changes patterns, in behaviour, structured population, vaccination, I mean, kind age of, structure, everything has been kind of thrown in. Yeah, in our like when we teach on courses, infectious disease modelling courses, it's basically the whole course. There's every aspect of it. Uh, we've kind of had our understanding tested, um, which has been quite a interesting and amazing experience really. Did you ever think that was going to happen? No. 
So how has working on the pandemic impacted you personally? Because especially you two are a couple, right? So, and you, as I, it sounds like you do quite a lot of work together. Um, yeah, we only, we, so I think before the pandemic, we only published one paper together. Is that right? No, maybe two. We didn't work much together no. beforehand. I think. We've got different styles of working that are not necessarily compatible. So what are your different styles? What is your style, Leon? Um, <clears throat> I procrastinate and then do things really quickly at the last minute and make massive approximations and Ellen is much more thorough and conscientious about doing things on time. And that I think is quite frustrating for Ellen, um, but actually fine for me. <laughs> not just that I feel like we're a classic uh like in the Myers-Briggs kind of personality um characterization I'm definitely an introvert in terms of the way I think like I like working on my own I like not being disturbed I like thinking through things and Leon likes talking all the time <laughs> and that's I, how I think I think so when I talk but I find that I think it was mainly me who didn't like working with Leon because I found it quite frustrating because I felt like I just needed to, to think through things and have a bit of kind of clearness in my head. And yeah, Leon's, I know, I know you need both kinds of scientists, but I just, I think that I always found quite difficult. But this time she had absolutely no choice because <laughs> we were stuck at home for several months at a time working on the same problem. So we just adapted. Well, I think it's works quite well because, um, you know, I think it must be quite difficult for people who are, are working on their own and they've got mm. families and partners who are not involved because we've had many, many nights where we've been up till midnight or one in the morning working on something together. So I think having Having some company to do all that late night working has been quite, really quite useful and quite nice, really. On a professional level, I think working with lots of people that we like in a very close sense, like the Juniper Consortium and, you know, these people that we've known for a long time and being able to sort of talk to them all the time is quite nice. So I quite like that. And also, I like the fact that science has been much more part of public mm. discourse in general. You know, like there's people on the news talking yeah. about science, whereas science quite often was like just a sub page mm -hmm. on, on the news or like, you know, just a small story in a newspaper. Whereas now kind of scientific questions are, everybody's interested in them. Like mm. I jogged, I went for a run and I ran past two women talking about the R number. And I thought like that would never have happened before. You know, people just didn't know what this it was. And now it's just part of everybody's everybody's common understanding yeah. of infectious diseases. And it's something that we provided throughout the epidemic. These estimates every week. I quite liked waking up as well to someone that we work with on the radio. Normally, <laughs> more, Mike. More, more or less every day on <laughs> yeah. Radio 4, somebody that we know is, on, is talking. And that 
takes us to the end of this edition of On the Mathematical Frontline, a special series of the PLUS podcast. To find out more about the work of Ellen and Leon and other members of Juniper, including Ellen and Leon's work on household bubbling, go to plus.maths.org juniper. Thanks for listening and bye bye.